you'd open your Bibles to Lamentations. <clears throat> I know some of you are thinking, Pastor Bob, everyone and his uncle preaches on Lamentations. Why are we doing it? <laughs> well, it's an important book. Sometimes when you come across books like Lamentations, you remind yourself that God has preserved this through all of time for us. The next generation that comes, God has preserved this book, along with others, for them. And so we must, out of duty and loyalty to God, read it and then think about it and try to understand why it is that this has been preserved for us, why it is that we need to know these things. And so that will be our attempt. Um, I will not in any way, shape, or form let you know how many sermons this is going to take because I have no idea. Uh, and in the end, I would be wrong. So... We will just take it as it comes and ask that the Lord would speak to our hearts um, through this book. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we are so grateful for your word. And Father, we do know that you have preserved your word for us. And Father, we ask that as we read through the book of Lamentations and as we think about those things that were written, as we think about what was going on, what was being communicated, we pray, Lord, not only will we understand those things, then, Lord, we would understand how these things are to be applied to our lives, to the way we live, to the way we think, to how we understand the world around us. We pray, Lord, it would be beneficial to all of us. As always, we are grateful. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Lamentations, beginning in verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of afflictions and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The rose to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before their pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously before she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Clearly, that is not something that you read at a birthday party. It begins with this horrible description of what's been taking place. The book of Lamentations is a mournful postscript, really to the book of Jeremiah. Remember that Jeremiah's nickname, so to speak, was the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was the prophet that when he came along, nobody wanted to hear what he had to say because they knew it was going to be negative. 
and they just didn't want to put up with that. Throughout the book of Lamentations, basically what you have are five funeral laments. The author is grieving over the fate of Jerusalem. As we already read in a couple of verses, it's because of her sin. The book contains more than just backward glances, though, a vindicated prophet. It's a reminder that sin, in spite of all of its allurement and excitement, carries with it heavy weights of sorrow, grief, misery, barrenness, and pain. Now, often as Christians, we would say that we know that. But there's a difference between knowing something intellectually, knowing something in your mind, and truly being aware of something. In the sense that it is guiding you and directing you as you live your life and make your decisions. Because if there are certain weaknesses that we have as human beings, certain weaknesses that we have as Christians, it is in this area we forget that all sin is against God. We tend to think like the world. As I've mentioned to you before, I, some, some people used to say to me when I was a chaplain at the jail that, that my job there would be easy because I would never have to convince anyone they were a sinner. And I would say, you just don't know people, do you? Because most of those individuals believe they have not sinned. Because in their mind, if you would ask them, have you sinned? I've asked guys that. So, oh, chaplain, no way. I've, I've never killed anyone. I've never sold drugs to children. I've never molested anyone. So in their mind, sin is a specific category of sins. And so they think of the big ones that, that not only they have not done, but the worst things they can imagine. And because they've not done those things, they do think that they're like the, all the rest of us. They're pretty good. We all have bad days, we have good days, and we all make mistakes. And so we fail to really take a, a somber and realistic look at ourselves and the world around us. Lamentations is a book both mourns the fall of a city, but, and it does offer reproof, it does offer instruction and hope to the survivors. The title of Lamentations is taken from the very first word in the book, which is in Hebrew is Eka, I believe. That's why when I read the English Standard Version, it began with the word how. And that's what it's translated. In some places, it would be alas. I, I think that maybe a good way to read that, so we both get the, not just the question, but the emotional impact, it would be to, re, to be read this way. Alas, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. Alas, how like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. So the idea is there's this wonderment and amazement uh, and shock at what has happened. Thinking about the greatness of this city and the greatness of its people in one sense. And now at this, the complete opposite picture that they're looking at. When it comes to the book of Lamentations, it doesn't name who the author is. The Jewish tradition is that it's Jeremiah. Most believe that it's true. In fact, in the Septuagint, which again, if you, whenever you, if you come across like in your notes in your Bible, sometimes it, a, it may give an alternate uh, rendering of a verse and it'll have the letters LXX. That's the Roman numerals for 70. That stands for the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, and uh, it's considered to be accurate. We believe that Jesus quoted from it and kind of lent some credibility to it. So the Septuagint added the following words to the introduction to the book of Lamentations. And it reads this way. And it came to pass, after Israel was taken captive, and Jerusalem made desolate, 
that Jeremiah sat weeping and lamented with this lamentation over Jerusalem, and he said. And that's how it begins. So Jeremiah then would have penned these, and one individual called it this poetic dirge, which would be a slow, solemn, mournful piece, either of music or a poem, where he laments after Jerusalem, that he would have penned this probably right after Jerusalem fell to Babylon in 586 B.C. So it may have been written closely toward the end of that year, uh, during that time. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army were the ones who were responsible for this. They actually first invaded Judah in 605 B.C., and they did so to punish King Jehoiakim, who had broken his covenant and revolted against Babylon. That's where we come across the story of Daniel and his three friends, along with many other Jews who were deported to Babylon. The army returned in March of 597 when they looted Jerusalem and they deported more people. But the king there continued to rebel. And so from 588 to 586 BC, the army of Babylon ground away at the defenses of Jerusalem. And so there was this early flush of excitement when the siege was broken earlier on and Jerusalem thought that they had gotten away with rebelling against Babylon. And so that euphoria that, was, that they were experiencing pretty much dissipated when uh, Babylon was replaced, uh, when they replaced their army and began the siege again. Part of the reason why Jerusalem was feeling secure before the final act by Babylon was they had successfully negotiated a treaty with Egypt, and Egypt was going to be her ally and bring their armies to come and help them vanquish the Babylonians. When the Babylonians had heard that the Egyptian army was marching against them, they just basically turned and went after them and defeated them. Then they came back to Jerusalem. So one by one, the various cities of Judah were crushed till only one remained, and that was Jerusalem. Within the city, within this ever-tightening siege, the Babylonian armies began unraveling the very fabric of society. And so we have some horrific stories that come out of that. It is true that there were starving mothers who really did eat their own children. It's hard to imagine being in that type of a predicament where that actually becomes an option that you think about and that you think about for a while and then you enact. There's maybe all kinds of ways, I guess you could try to justify in your mind to do that. It's just hard to imagine because I think all of us would immediately say, there's no way on earth I would ever even think about that. And I'm sure all of those individuals, and I don't know how many did that, but I'm sure all of those individuals would have said that they would be that kind of person. I would never even think of that, much less do it. Idolatry had flourished in Jerusalem. They'd even set up idols in the temple itself. The people cried out during this time when Babylon came against them. They did not just cry out to the Lord. They cried out to every single God they could imagine. They were crying out to all of them. They were continuing, in essence, worshiping their idols out of desperation because of what was going on. Paranoia gripped the people. And so they were willing even to kill God's prophets and treat him as a traitor and a spy just because he spoke the truth. The siege ended abruptly in July, on July 18th, 586 B.C. The walls were then breached and the Babylonian army began entering the city. King Zedekiah and the remaining men in his army tried to flee and they were captured. 
And in some of the history that I was reading, they caught Zedekiah alive, and they brought him back to their base camp. Then they brought in his family. They released his daughters. Then they killed, I think they beheaded his sons in front of him, and then blinded him. So the last thing he saw was his sons being killed. And then they kept him alive. I believe he lived for many, many years uh, as a captive, being taken care of, not really that well, but kind of as, as, a, as, as a message to all the surrounding peoples that the king of Jerusalem, that story would go around. The last thing he saw was his sons being, de, uh, being de, uh, beheaded. They've blinded him, and now that's all. He has nothing left, and that's his life. It took several weeks for Nebuchadnezzar to secure the city and to strip it of all of its valuables, which they did. But by August 14th of 586, the task was completed and the destruction of the city began. And so they basically carted off everything of value, including all of the valuables, the, the various utensils, etc., that were in the temple, and all that went to Babylon. Then the armies of Babylon burned the temple. They burned the king's palace. They burned all the other major buildings in the city. They tore down the walls of the city, which provided her protection. When the Babylonians finally finished their destruction and departed uh, with their prisoners, they left a jumbled heap of smoldering rubble. I mean, the, their destruction was complete. And again, part of the vengeance they took on uh, Jerusalem was really a, also a message to be sent to anyone else who would dare to defy them. Anyone else thinks they're going to come against us? Anyone else thinks they're going to betray or break their, uh, their treaties with us? Here's an example. This is what's going to happen. Jeremiah witnessed the destruction of the temple. He witnessed the destruction of the city. This once very proud capital was, was now something that had been trampled to dust. Her people were now under the harsh hand of a cruel taskmaster. With all these events stamped vividly on his mind, Jeremiah then sat down to compose his series of laments. Along with this book, though, there is a relationship of this book to a chapter, a very specific chapter in the Bible. That is the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. And if you would, in your bulletins, there is a chart. It's easy to find because you have to turn your bulletin sideways to look at it. Uh, but it's a comparison of what Jeremiah is recording to Deuteronomy, chapter 28, where God says what's going to happen if Israel is unfaithful. And in there, you will find really some horrible things. Uh, again, in chapter 4 of Lamentations, it says, With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verses 56 and 57, it says, The most gentle and sensitive women among you will begrudge the husband she loves and her own son or daughter the afterbirth from her womb and the children she bears, for she intends to eat them secretly during the siege. Now, I could explain to you in great detail what that's talking about, but I will spare you. If you really want to know, I will tell you, because I believe that when you understand what that's speaking of, it's probably the singular grossest thing in the Bible. So I'll win that trivia contest. But it's horrible to imagine. It's oftentimes overlooked, but again, what we need to re recognize and remember is that all of the heartaches that the people of Israel were going through, what they were experiencing, had been predicted about 900 years earlier by Moses. God had warned of the fearful consequences of disobedience. As Jeremiah carefully noted, God faithfully carried out those curses. This is the picture of God that people don't like. 
This is the picture that makes many individuals uncomfortable. This is a picture of a just God exacting justice on people because of their sin and rebellion. Some have said when they've tried to describe the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, imagining that there's a difference with God, they would say that the God of the Old Testament um, is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy because we're thinking of the gospel. I would contend that the God of the Old Testament is also a God of mercy because God put up with Israel's repeated sinfulness for over 900 years. That's a long time. If you just think about it, 900 years is a long time. He had continuously sent prophets to warn them that he really was going to do what he said he was going to do. Just like we know with our own children, if you tell your children what's going to happen to them if they disobey, and they disobey, and let's perhaps say you show them mercy, and they disobey again, and you show them mercy, what we do learn is there must be an end to mercy. Because if there is no end to mercy, then they would never take seriously what you say. Never. And we see that God is merciful and we're gracious. And he wants us to learn, and we can we can learn through mercy, absolutely. But some of us, maybe many, are just so thick-headed, it doesn't work. And so we must experience pain and tragedy to understand what we actually knew. So when it comes to this, I do think that sometimes Christians living in this day and age in our country, and we really, despite the fact that we have issues with inflation and we have all these problems that we have, if you think about it, our lives are really pretty good. If you, if, you, if you understand how many people in the world live differently than we do and what they have and don't have and what we have, our lives are good. God, is, God has been so gracious. It, it, it used to trouble me a lot. It still does every now and then. Why has God allowed me to live here? I, I have comfort. When, when it gets hot, I have air conditioning. When it gets cold, I have heat. When I get hungry, Kroger is less than 30 seconds down the road. And then along with that, there's all these incredible restaurants. Popeye's is, is one that comes to mind immediately. And then there's several Asian ones that I love. I mean, it's just, and I can go eat. I can do that. And so when you think about these things, we tend to also, I guess, forget that God judges our sin. Now, now we know, if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we know that our sin has been paid for. We know that. But Hebrews still says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. We know that God disciplines us. God does not punish us as believers, but he does discipline. I don't know about you, but I've experienced discipline in life, and it can hurt. So discipline is not necessarily painless. It does have a very different goal than punishment. And that's a good thing. It alters a lot of things when it comes to discipline. I don't about you, but I want to do all I can to avoid the discipline of God. I don't want to experience the discipline of God. I wish I could tell you that I have lived my life in such a brilliant way 
that I have very ever rarely experienced the discipline of God. But that is not true. I want to learn. I ask God, make me smart to learn from your discipline so that I don't need to be disciplined again. I've heard from my father before the words, how many times do I have to tell you? Those are always worse. It wasn't like I invented a new thing to do wrong. I did the same old things as I did before. But I do think that we at times need a sobering wake up to the God that we love and care for so much, to the God who loves us. And I do think we need a sobering wake up to recognize that there are many people that we love and know that are going to experience the judgment of God. It, it is real. It's coming. God at this moment in time is being merciful to people in your family who don't know Christ. He is showing them great mercy. We need to ask the Lord to help us to recognize and to create opportunities to share the gospel. And when I say that I'm not, I am not trying to make you feel guilty and tell you that you need to make sure that you give them the entire plan of salvation in the next 48 hours. Because I just, that's not how life works. But I do think that we need to be much more cognizant that we are Christians and that they are not. And that there are many ways to share the Lord with others, to take advantage of open doors. It may only be momentary, it may only be sentences, and it may lead to a time when we can share more thoroughly. That, that would be great. But we just can't just overlook those things and live our life as if this never happens. Try, as we go through these things over the next several weeks, try to imagine in your mind and, and, we, and we can see this happen because we've been watching it. If you've, if you've been watching some of the news about the Ukraine, you can watch the war. You can watch the atrocities taking place firsthand. And then there's videos of, you know, one Ukraine shoots a missile. Watch, watch the Ukrainian missile take out an army tank from six miles away. And you can see all these things happening. When the, when the earthquakes, the very strong earthquakes, hit Turkey, we were able to watch what took place within a matter of moments. And watch buildings collapse. I think at this time, there's still, I think there's 84,000 buildings that have collapsed or are near collapsing in Turkey. And even though I know the death rate is, is uh, now over, officially over 50,000, most believe that it will easily exceed 100,000. This is trying to account for all these people that are missing. And there are some who actually believe the number will be well past 100,000. And we can see this. So, so imagine also, let's say there was something else. Let's say that something was going on and there was something. I guess it's always easier to imagine it happening in other countries because we don't think it's going to happen here. But imagine if some prominent city was suddenly surrounded by their enemies, where they were literally physically cut off from aid, where any rescue planes or Red Cross planes that were going to bring in food would be shot down, where, where whatever army this is, that they, and, we, and we would even have maybe cell phone images coming out of the city where people are showing the suffering of the people and showing people suffering and dying and all the, the horrific things that begin to take place when a city is laid siege to. That's the picture that we're going to get here from Jeremiah. I, I think it's in my notes later, but I'll throw it out there now because I thought it was an incredibly uh, uh, observation made by a couple of commentators that I read. And they said, for all of the things that Babylon did to Jerusalem, what you will notice about the book of Lamentations is 
Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon is never mentioned. The clear message is, this is from God. It cannot be, it cannot be stopped. And it's just, it's, it is, sometimes it's hard to grapple with that. The world does want to immediately throw shade, I guess you would say, on God and say that he is unjust and he's cruel and he's mean. And how can you believe in such a God? Well, these people deserve what they got because they, God had warned them specifically of what would happen to them. Again, in our minds, we think, well, like someone, someone might say it this way. So what's the big deal? They didn't go to church and make sacrifices. Is this what they deserve? You see, our view of sin is very different than God's view of sin. Even we as believers who know intellectually that all sin deserves death. We, that's what the Bible says. I believe what the Bible says with all of my heart. I, I still sometimes have a hard time imagining that there's individuals who in my mind have done certain things compared to the other group that has done really evil things that they deserve this. Because there's a lot of people suffering here. And the whole time that those thoughts enter my mind, at the same time what I'm thinking is, God makes no mistakes. God is always right. Always. He's always right. So anything I have, any problem I have with anything that's going on here, the problem is always with me. I'm the one that's in error. I'm the one that's wrong. I don't like to admit that, but I'm the one that's wrong. And my emotions are misleading me. What's interesting is that there are many who say that the faithfulness of God in the end of this, and faithfulness of God in carrying out these curses, curses that it is this characteristic that makes Lamentations a book of hope for Israel. God was faithful in his discharge of every aspect of the covenant that he made. Israel was punished for disobedience, but she was not consumed because God's covenant was still in force. The same covenant that promised judgment for disobedience also promised restoration for repentance. Thus, Jeremiah could offer hope in the midst of despair. But I think what's important is, is to recognize the true state of what it means to be in despair. We're not playing a part in a movie. Remember once my children had gotten in trouble and they made a request. Daddy, can mommy spank us? They wanted the lesser punishment, even though it was going to be the same. Of course, we addressed that. And I want you to know that there was terror in their eyes when I had them all sit on the couch. And I took out a pillow and a paddle and instructed mom on how to spank. They were not happy because it made a difference. And at that moment, for a few moments, I think they experienced despair, only for a while. And they were back to their disobedient selves. But the thing is, is I think sometimes we don't really recognize despair. We can go through a real hard time. And in one sense, the hard times we go through are very hard and difficult. But they're not like this. They're not. If you see what's going on in Turkey, or see what's going on in, at least in some parts of Ukraine, we're not going through that. Our lives are intact compared to that. Jeremiah's message to the Israelites in captivity was to learn the lesson of Deuteronomy 28. 
and turn back to the Lord. In Lamentations chapter 5, verse 21, it says, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. For those of us who are believers, we know that no matter how horrible times may come for us, and even if we recognize it's because we have been unfaithful, which, which can't happen, remember that we can always pray this, to restore God to himself. Because if he does that, we know that our life will be restored. But it's to him first. It is true, though, sometimes when people go through those difficult times, this is not what they're praying. And so the prayer, again, that we read there was not a doubting cry from a discouraged remnant. It was a response of faith from those captives who had mastered the lessons of Deuteronomy 28 and the book of Lamentations. They were calling on God to fulfill the final part of his covenant and restore them as a nation from captivity. Let me cover this with you quickly. There's a comparison between Jeremiah and Jesus. Jesus asked his disciples once who the people said he was. And in Matthew 16, it reads, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jeremiah. I have a list there that I found that comes out of comparing their lives. The ministries of both Jeremiah and Jesus were were rejected by the people. Both men wept over the city of Jerusalem because they knew that destruction was coming. The destruction that was coming when Jesus was weeping was the destruction he foretold that came in 70 AD, when the city was under siege around 69 AD, and then basically the Romans were tired of waiting and they marched in. And if you read Josephus, what he'll tell you is, is that during the slaughter 1,100,000 Jewish citizens were killed by the Roman sword. Both of these men were hated without cause. Both were ridiculed by leaders. Jeremiah was rejected by his family. And Jesus was rejected by his family. Remember that Jesus' brothers were not believers. They became believers after the resurrection. But not during his life. Both Jeremiah and Jesus emphasized what we would call a heart religion and not just ritual. They both taught by means of visual images and used common objects and activities to instruct the people. The message of both Jeremiah and Jesus were rejected. The prophet Jeremiah ended up in Egypt and Jesus ended up on a Roman cross. And in their day, both of them were considered miserable failures. When it comes to the book of Lamentations, Lamentations was not written simply to express grief over loss, but again, it was written to help God's people cope with loss and the temptation to despair by reminding them of God's presence and God's rule, which I think on one hand, when I think about it, I guess you would say psychologically, it's an odd approach. When someone's going through great, great difficulty and they are in immense sadness to where they're overwhelmed. To remind them that God is faithful to punish the wicked just does not sound like it's comforting. But the goal here is once again to make us think correctly about things. To not allow our emotions to overwhelm us. This isn't to get rid of the emotion, but this is to help us to process what's happening. 
And the idea is that God is faithful to everything he says. And it is true, if he is faithful here, he's also faithful over here in this restoration and the promise. When things go bad for us as believers, imagine what it must be like, because we, we, we don't always think about this, what happens to believers in other countries where they are suffering very severe persecution, where people really are tortured and killed for being Christians, where this torture is not something that, that necessarily will last for a few hours, and there are times it lasts for years and years and years, and it's only because they're Christians. How do they endure how do they not turn against God and say, God, you promised me this and you promised me that, and I have lost everything. I've lost my family. I've lost my health. I have nothing left in life. No one even knows I'm in this prison. I suffer every day to the glee of these evil men and women, and you do nothing. How do they not pray that? Because from what I've read and the ones that I have met, they don't pray that. They are, they are confessing sin to God and praying for their captors. They really are. We've seen before, we've had a list of the top ten prayer requests from those who are suffering physical persecution throughout the world. And in that top ten, there is not one request for vengeance on their captors. And in there, there's also at times confession of sin. What we do when we gather together and we confess our sins on Sunday morning, which is a very good part of our service, when they gather together and confess their sin, I guarantee you it's a whole lot different. There is weeping. There is, they are contrite. There's self-loathing. They know that God forgives believers. They know that they are forgiven. Yet they are so aware in, in what they're going through, they're so aware of their own sinfulness, it just, it, it just, is beyond our comprehension, except I think they're really in tune with God. They're close to God. They are viewing themselves and the world like Jesus does. They've given their hearts completely to the Lord, to the point that they still see their own sin before they see the sin of those who torture them. Now, I don't know about you, but I can say honestly that my heart is not that close to God. I want my heart to be that close to God, but it's not. I, I would like to say, oh yeah, yeah, this is exactly how I would be. I, I actually don't think that, when I think about it deeply, I don't want to think about it anymore because I even disappoint myself. But I, but I do want that. And then even when I say that, I, I say I think I want that because I don't know what God would need to do to me to get me to that point. I, I want that, but, but I, I don't. You know, it's kind of like the individual who wants to be a the great football player. Well, here's what you have to do with your life to do that. There's a lot of discipline in this, a lot of pain and agony. And that's why very few, whatever the sport is, very few ever go on to do that. Because it's not just about talent. It's about the sacrifice. Suffering will either harden us or make us more pliable in the hands of God. That is a universal spiritual principle. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 15. Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. The NIV reads, good understanding wins favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. The New American Standard says, good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard. I don't want to be the unfaithful one. Because if I am, 
life is hard. It's the hard way. Sin and its results cannot be disassociated. Labor that is rendered must receive proper payment. If something is earned, it is unjust to hold back the wages. Thus, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, as I mentioned to you earlier, what, one of the interesting things about Lamentations is, again, there's no mention of Nebuchadnezzar and no mention of his armies, though his armies destroyed Jerusalem and carried his people away as captives. Because Jeremiah and Israel realized that the law of God was at work. The New Testament says it this way, whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And so that is actually to be the message of encouragement to you and me. God is faithful. God does judge sin. I am glad, I am, that God judges sin. Even though at the same time I don't want God to judge the sin in my life, but I do want him to judge the sin in your life. And I think many of you want God to judge the sin in my life, and you don't want God to judge the sin in your life. I'm also the mindset that I would rather God judge me early on because perhaps the judgment would be more bearable than to allow me to stay in my sin and punish me later. It should be the same way that's how we discipline our children, is it not? Do we say to ourselves, well, I know I should discipline my children. I will wait until they're 16. That will unleash a life that you don't want to inherit. That's why when some people have immense problems with a teenager, you may not want to say at this time, but you tell them that, well, the problems you have with your child didn't start last Tuesday. They probably started when they were three, when you allowed them to yell at you and you never corrected them. When you allowed them to, to be defiant and you didn't correct them. That's when it started. And so I trust now that as we then begin our trek through the Book of Lamentations, that with that as our background, we'll have a, a, at least a proper understanding and foundation so that when we begin to work our way through the book, we will be able to learn those things that God would have us to learn. My prayer is that it will change us internally, that we will grow closer to God, that our perspective will be one that is truly much more biblical, and that we will yearn for God's consistency in our lives, which will be both judgment as well as blessing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, we ask that as we go through a book that is viewed by some as being unfortunate, a book that is viewed by some as being one that is just negative, that we will see, Father, the full scope of what it is, and that we'll have a complete understanding of all that you would have us to know. We pray, Lord, that we would come to a much better understanding of you, and that our respect for you and our love for you will both grow as well as our gratefulness. And maybe even at times we will shudder, understanding that we have been saved from the severe justice of God by the mercies of Jesus Christ. And for that, we thank you. So, Father, we ask now that you bless us as we bring our time to a close. In Christ's name, amen.